Well, church, let me invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians this morning. should not come as a surprise to you as we are working our way through this uh, wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we are now, I guess, in the last chapter, aren't we, here in chapter 5. And I trust the Lord will bless us this morning as we consider these first eight verses in chapter 5. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go verse by verse. So, um, and again, that should not surprise you. And so you will be helped once again, as I like to remind you to have a copy of God's Word open in your lap this morning as we just work through this and repeatedly refer back to it, that your understanding what we're considering happens to be the Word of God. And I trust by the time we're done, we'll have a better understanding of God's truth in this passage and what it means to us, that is how it applies to our lives. So um, please, if you have an opportunity, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, or if you want to use the Pew Bible you find that on page 987. So here we are, 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, are drunk at night, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Our Father, we are thankful uh, for this opportunity once again as you give us on these Sunday mornings to have a time in your word and to consider it and apply it to our lives. And we trust that you would want to do a good work in us and through us as you teach us from your word. In particular, as we consider the great and awesome day of the Lord, we pray, Father, that you would help us to know more about it, and in particular, how we can live in light of it, how we might be be prepared for it. And so we're thankful, Father, for this scripture. In particular, we want to pray for those here this morning that do not know Christ as their Savior, and that they would be aware, even as you teach, that there is a coming day of judgment, and that they best prepare for it even now. And that they might prepare for it, not by works of righteousness and goodness, but by yielding their life to a crucified Savior and a resurrected Lord. And so do this work of salvation in them even now as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. John Napier, the 17th century mathematician, was the inventor of the logarithms not even exactly sure what a logarithm is, but I know that's a mathematical term. And he would use his invention, logarithms, to predict when Christ returned. His prediction, year 1700. And, uh, and so as people who make these predictions tend to do, he wrote a book. He wrote it in 1688. And for the next 12 years, it went through 23 different editions. 
An amazing amount of people purchased this book way back hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Now, again, it hasn't sold very well since the year 1700. Um, but he, that was his attempt. Of course, he failed. Not to be outdone, Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, those people who knock upon your door, understood that Christ would return in 1874. Uh, when he failed to come, he tried again and predicted my fault. Let's fast forward 40 years. He is returning in October 1914. When he didn't show up in 1914, they once again revised. They said, well, he actually did show up in 1914, but he showed up invisibly. And in fact, he came to Philadelphia, uh, they say, in his invisible form. But trust us, he's going to return visibly in 1925. When he didn't show up in 1925, they asked for a little bit more time and said, we were wrong, but now we figured it out. He's coming in 1975. When he didn't come in 75, they said, oh, we figured it out now. When we said he was going to come in 1914, what we meant to say was that he's going to come to the generation that is alive in 1914. So uh, by our best figures, he will come at, at latest by the year 1994. There it is. Write it down. Trust me. He's coming in 1994. Well, of course, in modern memory, we have our own Harold Camping, not our own, but uh, the recent Harold Camping, uh, who spent, as you remember, don't you, $5 million to put billboards up all around the world, saying that Jesus will return on May 21st, 2011. And this prediction actually gave rise to an organization called Earthbound Pets. After all, who is going to take care of your kitty once you're raptured? And so for a, simply $135, you can have your pet cared for by an animal-loving atheist, um, right? Because you'll be gone, and so the atheist will come. That seems like quite a deal, doesn't it? According to the Washington Post, earthbound pets made tens of thousands of dollars. And yet after May 21st, year 2011, failed to materialize the return of Christ, Earth Pound Pets regrets to inform its clients they offer no refunds. Right? You see, despite these constant failures to predict when Christ will return and the mocking that the world seems to enjoy whenever Christians um, take a, a stab at this, those who do make the predictions, I mentioned this last week, have one thing going for them, and that is that they fervently watch for the return of Jesus. The opposite danger for us is not watching. The, or as used a biblical phrase, sleeping. Now we are, listen, we're sure that he's coming. We believe it. We sung about it even today. We believe that in our hearts. But it's kind of a vague sense in the back of our minds. It has really no impact on us at all. So you have on one hand the doomsday preacher who will, who will wrongly give you a date of his return. But you will stay awake. And then on the other hand, you have the biblical preacher who rightly will not give you a date, but then we are tempted to fall asleep. And so the question for us then is how can we stay awake when we don't know the date? How do we live in light of his return when we're unsure of when it is coming? You do recognize, of course, that throughout this book, you are exhorted to be ready for his return. Right? We are commanded 
to prepare for our coming king. We are told that we should be faithful stewards, ready for our master's return, that we are to be pure brides, eagerly expecting her groom. And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we are told that we must stay awake. We must stay awake when it comes to the return of Christ. That our minds as Christians should not simply be filled with gratitude for his past work or even dependence on his present work, but a hopeful anticipation of his future work. And it is to this future work that Paul here is speaking. In particular, how to prepare for this great day. A day in which Paul will call, in verse 2, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That's not a term that Paul would invent. It is a very prominent theme in the Old Testament, in particular with the prophets of the Old Testament. The first to actually use that phrase chronologically was the prophet Amos, who would refer to it writing, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. We also noticed, if you remember back in the spring in our study of the book of Zephaniah, we discovered that he too speaks of the day of the Lord, writing, The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. Not to be outdone, the prophet Joel says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. A day like this has never been before, nor will there be again after. Fire devours before them. Behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes. Lastly, consider the prophet Isaiah, who says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty will come, therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pains and agony will seize them like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, he says, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. For the stars of heavens will not give their light. The sun will be dark and its rising. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And we could, my friends, listen, we could go on and on and on reading scripture after scripture. And this is not something that we invent. This is not something that, to be honest, that we particularly get excited in talking about. But the scripture repeatedly refers refers to it, repeatedly warns us that this great day is coming. And it is to this great day that the prophets of the Old Testament repeatedly return to that is linked to the return of Christ in the New Testament. That Christ's coming is the day of the Lord. Or as Peter puts it, the day of judgment. Or the day of God. Romans describes it as the day of God's wrath. Paul in Philippians says it's the day of Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, it's called the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians, it's called that day. In John, it's called the last day. In Jude, it's called the great day. And here and many other places, it is called the day of the Lord. And it is bringing, as we see, a judgment. There is an approaching judgment. And so the question for us, if judgment is coming, as Scripture unequivocally declares, how is it that we prepare for this approaching judgment? 
Well, it is not, how do we first not prepare? It is not by knowing its timing. It's not by knowing, the, why? Because the timing is unknown. It is an unknown timing. For Paul says in verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, we have no need to have anything written to you. When it comes to the timing of the Lord's return, there is what? No reason to write anything. Now we wish that many people would follow that advice. There's no reason. There's no need for a book on the timing of the Lord Jesus. There's no reason to write to you about the timing. Now, they, clearly they want to know, don't they? As many people want to know. And they want to know, I think not out of simply idle curiosity, they think it will help them prepare. Right? If we can know when he's coming, we can get ready. Right? Someone comes over for a visit. Right? You want to know what? When are you coming? Okay? So if someone's coming on vacation, they want to stay at your house. What day are you coming? What time are you showing up? Why? You want to prepare. You want to change the linens, don't you? You want to plunge the toilet or whatever you need to do, okay? Right? You, 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 you want to change out of your pajamas. People are coming over. I need to get ready. I like to know when. Thank you very much. But if, if we know when he's coming, they must have thought, as many people do, we can get ready. But Paul says to them, listen, I'm not going to talk to you about this. We're not, we're not even going to get in it. Why? Because we don't know. The Bible couldn't be more clear. We don't know. Jesus says what? No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I mean, what more does he need to say? No one knows the day. No one can know the day. No one will know the day. It is therefore useless to try to figure out the day. It might be this afternoon. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It might be in a thousand years. It might be in a hundred thousand years. Right? It might be in the year 100,002, right? I don't know. Maybe in 100 million years. We have no idea when it's coming, right? In fact, in Acts chapter 1, you remember that. They, they were talking about this back then. Remember, Jesus, of course, has done all his miracles, and he's proven he's the Messiah, and he's healed, and he's taught, and he's died to pay for the wrath, uh, uh, pay, to, to endure the wrath of God for sinners. He has risen from the grave, and, and now he comes, gathers his apostles and disciples near him, and they say, surely now is the time in which you shall fully establish the kingdom of God, right? Isn't now the time? Remember his answer? It is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. That's not for you to know, he says. Instead, you do what? You go out and witness. You go out into the world. You go to places like Hamilton, Virginia, and, and, and uh, Antigua, Guatemala, and Accra, Ghana, and you tell them about the Savior. Right? The answer is not to sit on the hill and figure it out. The answer is get off the hill and go to your work and go to your school, and go to your neighbors, and go to the nations, and tell them about Jesus Christ. In fact, his coming is going to be like a thief in the night. You see that in verse 2? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Just as Peter said, he's going to come like a thief, which I think Peter just learned that from Jesus, who said, I'm coming like a thief, Matthew 24, just as a thief just as the thief, so the Son of Man will come in an hour, you do not expect him. So you see, the time is not only unknown, it's unexpected. It's on an unexpected day. Thieves 
are always surprising. Right? Right? Thieves, you're never expecting a thief. I mean, maybe, maybe you've been burglarized. My parents' house has been, has been burglarized. And they came home one day, and the front door was kicked open, and they walked into the house, and everything was scattered uh, all about, and the whole place was ransacked. And you know what? They never, t- they never told them they were coming. They never gave them advance notice. Right? They were just totally caught off guard. Right? They, don't, they don't send a postcard. Dear sir and madam, you know, we, we happen to come by you know, on Tuesday at 2 a.m. and, and we, we hope to burglarize your home. Right? Sincerely, your, your neighborhood thieves. Right? That's not what we're getting. Okay? You're not expecting it to happen. The day of the Lord, therefore, will be what? Surprising. Surprising. In fact, it seems they're expecting the exact opposite. For we read in verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Okay? They're going to be running around, not, hey, let's get ready, the thief's coming. They're going to say, peace and security. Almost sounds like an American slogan, doesn't it? Like a political slogan. Vote for me, I give peace and security. Right? We don't want hope and change anymore. We want peace and security. And this is what I'm here to go. This is what the world is constantly offering us, isn't it? We'll protect you. Vote for me. I'll protect you. Vote for me. I'll give you peace. Vote for me. I'll make all your dreams come true. I mean, there's one guy running around saying, vote for me. I'll give you $1,000 a month um, and it, uh, for every single American. I mean, vote for me. Peace and security. That would be very peaceful, wouldn't it? I wouldn't mind $1,000 a month. And that's what this world is offering, peace and security. And yet we as Christians, of course, know what? There is no peace. And there is no security apart from Christ. And yet the world is totally oblivious to it. They're totally oblivious to the coming danger. They're totally oblivious that they will one day stand before a holy God. Just as Jesus Christ himself said, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving away in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. None of those things are wrong, by the They're just going about their life. No thought of the coming judgment, rejoicing in their imagined security, and therefore they will be totally astonished when he comes upon them this day, bringing an unwelcome loss. It will come with an unwelcome loss. For the thief metaphor doesn't simply emphasize the surprise, but the loss as well. For he does say in verse 3, when the people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Sudden destruction. Thief doesn't come to put flowers on your, on, uh, as a centerpiece on your table, right? He comes to take stuff. He comes to ruin your, your house and all your possessions. And even as we've seen already, it's going to be a great and terrible day of reckoning. There's earthquakes and disasters and storms and fire and smoke. The moon turns dark. The stars are snuffed out. All these metaphors that the Bible is using to describe this day. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul will say they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. You see, it's a day that will be unexpected, unwelcomed. And you also notice it will be unavoidable. Look how he changes the metaphor there in verse 3. He says, when the people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
So he used two metaphors to describe the coming of Christ. The thief in the night, right, which I think emphasizes that he's going to be sudden and unexpected. Now the labor pains rep, uh, represent that it also will be sudden but not unexpected, right? A labor pains is not unexpected. for You get yourself in that condition when labor is coming, you know it's coming. It's not a surprise when it, you're not thinking, oh, what's happening now? Right? You know it's coming. So it's not emphasizing the unexpectedness, but the unavoidableness. If I, could, I don't even think that's a word, but you understand what I'm saying. Look what he says there at the end of verse 3. So there will be no escape. Like labor pains, there is no escape. Right? You, you, don't, you, don't, you, you can't escape labor. You, <laughs> you're, you're, you're pregnant. It is going to come upon you. You don't even get to schedule it. Uh, at least in this day you didn't. Right? In fact, if you could schedule it, my wife would have scheduled a month in advance. All all our kids are like two weeks late. Um, And so she would have been very happy to schedule that. I don't know, for for some reason, all our kids want to be born at 3 a.m. I don't know if that's your situation. They all, all, I mean, she wakes up in the middle of the night and say, it's happening. We got to go to the hospital. 1 a.m., it's time to go to the hospital. I want to hit the snooze button, right? Right? You know, her belly button's poking out by that time. I don't know if that's the snooze button. You know, just got, you know, you know how, about, uh, how about after breakfast? That's when we have a nice breakfast. And then we just got 10, I don't know, 10 a.m. That sounds nice. Let's go to the hospital then. Right? No, you don't, you don't get to schedule it. You don't get to determine it. It's just going to come when it comes, and it's unavoidable. So John Stott says, the case of the thief, there's no warning. In the case of labor, there is no escape. In other words, once the judgment of God comes... Listen, there's no opportunity to escape divine wrath. And therefore, we must prepare beforehand. See, Paul won't tell them the timing. One, because it's unknowable. But two, to know the timing will actually hinder the preparation. It won't help you prepare. It actually will hinder your preparation. Jesus said as much in Matthew 24. You must also be, be ready, right? There's the preparation. You must also be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour you do not expect, right? We must prepare, he says. And so how is it that we make the appropriate preparations? It's to this, it seems, that Paul now turns after explaining that this judgment is coming. How is it that we prepare? He begins by saying, we do so by being saved, by being saved. Look how verse 4 begins. He says, but you, right? You see that contrast. So all this is going to happen, all this loss, all this unavoidableness, and it's going to happen upon them, evidently. But you, he says, what? Are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief? That day won't surprise you like a thief. He says, why? Not because you know the timing, but because you're not in darkness, you're not, it's a metaphor, right? You're not in ignorance. You're in the light. As he says in verse 5, you're not of the night, you're of the day. For he writes, for we are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. What's he talking about? Is he coming at, well, I was teaching this passage to my kids last night. Someone asked, is he coming at daytime or nighttime? Right? What's going on? Well, it depends who we are. It depends whether you live in darkness or whether you live in light. It depends if you live in the night, as he says in verse 5, or you live in the day. 
You see the metaphor that he's drawing out. In fact, the, the Bible uses this metaphor about, uh, it talks about night as the period before the coming of the Messiah. You read this in the prophets of the Old Testament. They said the period before the Messiah is like a long, dark night. But the hope and the promise was that one day the Messiah will come. And as, as many prophesied, the sun would rise, right? And the day would come. And Jesus, of course, is the Messiah. A new day has come. There is the dawning of the new light. And yet at the same time the light is shining, the old age has not ended. And so some people continue to live in the darkness of ignorance and sin. Others have come into the light of the glory of God, right? And so they they continue at the same time. Now, when Christ returns, all there will be is light. There'll be more, no more darkness, no more shadows to scurry into, for we might commit our rebellion to him. It will only be light from the glory of God radiating to all of the new creation. But until that day, these two ages, the age of darkness and light, they overlap. They exist at the same time. Now, by God's grace, the darkness is fading, and sometimes it doesn't look like that, does it? But I'm telling you, Christ is building his church throughout this world The kingdom is advancing. The light is shining into new and wonderful places. Yet the darkness remains and some scurry into the shadows. I love how Colossians 1 puts it. He delivered us from the domain of, you know what it is? The domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. My, My brothers and sisters in Christ, you once lived in the domain of darkness whether you know it or not. And you, by God's grace, have been transferred out of that domain into what? The kingdom of his beloved son. Praise God. You live in that kingdom by God's grace. When he returns, of course, the darkness will end. And there'll just be the light of the glory of God. And we have to be ready. We're ready. We begin by being ready for that day by being in the light. Therefore, if we're in the light, as he says in verse 4, isn't it? He won't surprise us like a thief. But you, brothers, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. What does he mean? Will will this day, I asked my kids last night, will this day surprise us? Will it surprise us? The answer is yeah, it will. But it will not surprise us like a thief will surprise us, right? It will surprise us like a, like a husband who comes home early from a business trip, not like a thief breaking into your house and taking your stuff. It will be, un, uh, his coming for us will, will be surprising, but not unexpected like a thief, not unwelcome like a thief, right? We know he's coming and we are therefore to live in light uh, of his return, live in expectation of his return. So both the believer and the unbeliever will be surprised, but surprised in totally different ways. The unbeliever will run around in distress, wailing as their heart melts and their faces display the anguish of what is to come. The believers too will run around, but in utter delight. Like a bride surprised by our groom who comes to whisk her away and take her on a lifetime of adventure. Like a daddy who comes home from a faraway land with stories to share and presents to give and children to embrace. The unbelievers on that day will lose everything they've lived for. 
Everything they sought to give themselves to. All the treasures will be stolen. All the idols will be dashed to pieces. The believers on the day of the Lord, he will come offering us treasures. He will come with his hands full of our inheritance. The unbelievers will share, uh, suffer destruction. The believers will glorify the Lord and marvel at the one whom they have trusted. So it will surprise us, but it will be a glorious surprise. I appreciate the modern song that I sometimes hear. It says, on that day we will sing of the name more excellent than angels, a purified bride, a refined heart, speech, and mind, where unity and fellowship is perfected in the church, where divine love rests in the hearts of the inhabitants of the new earth. And we will receive a crown only to cast it down at the feet of the resurrected Jesus in a perfect, ceaseless form of worship, singing glory to the liberating King who came not to conquer kingdoms, but to conquer hearts and restore men back to what they were intended for and escape from this life marked by anguish. A great fountain of love that flows from heaven's gates awaits us. You can take this world, its joys, and its fleeting pleasures, but give us Jesus, our future hope and greatest treasure. That's what we're headed for. And so he comes like a, like a loving uh, father, like a beloved groom, like a righteous king, if, what, we are not in darkness, if we are of the day. And so the question this passage raises is, do you belong to the darkness or do you belong to the light? That's ultimately how we prepare. We don't prepare by knowing when he's coming. We prepare by knowing the one who is coming. So how can we know? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You see, you, you can be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son by how? By belief. By believing the one who sent Christ, by believing that Christ has come to die for our sins and was raised three days later from the dead, by submitting your life to him, he says you will what? Not come into judgment. You will have eternal life. We must be saved. It's my great pleasure to offer that to anyone today who has yet to turn their life over to Christ. I promise you, I I declare to you, based upon the authority of the very word of God, that if you would yield your life to Jesus in faith, not try to fix your life, not try to do a bunch of religious rituals, not try to accumulate a, a, a goodness that you have done by your own works, but by simply bowing your life to Christ in repentance and faith, saying, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner I yield to you, you will be saved. You will live forever in a place the Bible calls heaven or the new earth. You want to get prepared for that day, get right with the one who is coming. Turn your life to him. And of course, those who have been saved, as I trust most of us have, those who belong to this day, we need to actually begin to live like it. We need to live like we are people of the day. And he tells us there are three ways in which we can. He begins by saying, we need to be alert. Be alert. Where he says there in verse 6, so then let us not sleep. Let us not sleep. We need to stay awake. Some of you are finding that difficult right now. Okay, 
We need to stay awake. Stay awake to what? Be alert, stay awake to the return of Christ. Notice, by the way, and I'll just make one sentence on this. He doesn't seem to think that the believers have been raptured out. Because he is telling them how to prepare for this great day. And he says, stay awake. Why? Because you're not of the night and people sleep at night. There you see in verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Right? So be alert to what's happening. Don't be blissfully ignorant. The rest of the world is asleep when it comes to the return of Christ. The rest of the world is really asleep when it comes to ultimate realities and what's going on in this world. It's ultimately asleep to the coming king. They're just snoring away. And the Bible continually exhorts us, hey, you shouldn't sleep on this one. In fact, the book of Revelation says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, so that he may not go about naked and be exposed. Which I think is really good advice. Okay? Right? I don't like being surprised when I'm naked. Okay? And I trust you don't as well. And that's exa- I'm just quoting scripture for you here. Okay? He says, you don't want to run around naked. The Bible says, like, why? So stay awake. Matthew 13, therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master is coming, whether it be in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early morning, otherwise he might come suddenly and find you sleeping. You don't want to be found sleeping. You want to be awake and alert. You want to be aware that Christ is coming. You want to be living like he's coming. You want to be expecting that he is coming. Right, that might be a good conversation over lunch today. Right, what would it mean for me to be awake in light of the return of Christ? Right, if, if, I, if we were watching, how would my life change this week? And let me just give you a couple examples. I think this has huge implications. Right, if you were alert to his return... I wonder if you would find greater perseverance in this life. I wonder if you would find greater stability and strength. You ever feel exhausted? Yeah. Anyone? I felt exhausted this week, just to let you know, okay? Mr. Mom, trying to do it. It's exhausting. You ever feel like you're going down? You ever feel like uh, you're in battle and you're about to fall? And then you hear a horn behind you? And the horn signifies the cavalry is coming? The reinforcements are on their way? If you know that reinforcements are coming, do you not think you would have strength to fight on? Hey, I'm going to fight on because reinforcements are on their way. Right? The circumstances haven't changed. You're still in the battle, but you know the king is coming. He's on his way. And the certainty of an arrival, of an overwhelming reinforcements, will give you strength. It will give you stability. The Lord is coming. You can fight on. Or if you're alert to his return... I bet you would be more forgiving. I bet you, if you were more conscious and aware of Christ's return, I bet you would find it easier to forgive. I bet you would uh, be less inclined to hold grudges. I, be, I bet you'd be less inclined to get offended. And I bet you'd be less inclined to hold on to bitterness. Right? You, you, ever, you, you ever get offended? Someone says something nasty to you? Someone cuts you off in the car? Someone backstabs you? Someone gossips about you? How do you react? Right? You're usually sad, aren't you? you Sometimes angry, hurt, maybe bitter. Okay? What if someone did that to you and you knew that this afternoon Christ is coming? Right, so someone cuts you off today on the way to church, but Christ is coming around 2.30. Right? Do you think that might change the way you react to that? You think that might change to the, to, to the way people treat you? 
You think you might say, okay, yeah, you said something ugly to me, but who cares? Christ is coming back. See, I think if you're watchful, you can deal with slights and hurts and bitterness, and you would just say, well, well, in just a minute or two, I'm going to stand before my God. Uh, Do you give you an example of someone who really understood this man named George Whitfield? Uh, In fact, uh, when I uh, a number of years ago, I I was interviewing for a senior pastor position. This is about 15 years ago. I interviewed at 10 different churches, and all 10 churches they asked me uh, the same question. And I don't know if there's a book on questions asked uh, potential pastors, but the question, and I found the question annoying all 10 times. It was, it was, who do you preach like? Who do you preach like? And I, I guess uh, preachers are supposed to model their preaching after other famous preachers. And I wanted to say, you know, I, I tried to preach like Stephen Carn, um, but, you know, you kind of want the job. So you don't want to be um, sarcastic right in the interview. I wait till you have the job. Then you could be sarcastic. Anyways, I learned, I learned to say, you know, I, I, want, I, um, I, I want to preach like George Woodfield. George Woodfield. Now, there's a couple of advantages in that answer. One is that he preached in the 18th century, okay? And so no one really, we have no recordings of George Woodfield, so you can't go and listen to George Woodfield. They would say, well, what did you like about George Woodfield? I say, I, I, I like that he preached for two hours, um, but then I had difficulty finding a job for some reason. But uh, <laughs> George Woodfield, his preaching was described as loud, loud. I think preachers ought to be loud every once in a while, as you know. George Woodfield would preach to 10,000 people routinely. He once preached to 60,000 people without amplification. 60,000 people, stadium full of people. He was able to preach to. He was loud and he was earnest. His preaching was not simply an offering of his voice. He gave his soul. In fact, his biographer writes, when his health was, fa- was, was, was failing, he placed himself on what he called short allowance, preaching only once every weekday and thrice on Sunday. Okay? Such a demanding schedule with such strenuous self-imposed standards came at great physical cost to Whitfield. For, for often, after leaving the pulpit, he vomited blood. And those who knew him intimately tell us that after preaching, he lay panting on his couch, spent, breathless, and death-like. Whitfield died from an asthma attack. He literally preached himself to death. And yet, through that preaching ministry, he brought about what historians call the Great Awakening. He changed the course of history by God's grace. In fact, and I shared this with you before, I'm sure, even secular historians say the reason that Great Britain did not experience a, 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 a bloody revolution like that in France when the poor rose up to overthrow the rich and the nobility was because so many of the poor uh, a decade or two earlier had came to faith in Christ through Whitfield's preaching. He literally saved Great Britain from a, from a bloody civil war when tens of thousands of people came to faith through his ministry. And yet at the same time, Whitfield was hated by the press. Isn't that interesting? The press doesn't like Christian, okay? But he was also hated by the church. And, 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 and they would say terrible, nasty things about Whitfield. They would write it in the papers. They would publish books. They would preach it in their pulpits. And yet this man, by all accounts, had no bitterness towards anyone. In fact, he once wrote in his journal, They wrote another book about me. This one says I have five wives. 
I read an article that says I'm leaving illegitimate children in every town I go. Oh well, in just a few moments, we will all be before God. He was never bitter. He, He was a man of incredible humility and peace because why? He knew that Christ is coming. He knew that when Christ will come, he will settle all accounts. And so despite all his supporters continually telling him to defend himself, he would never, ever address any of these accusations. In fact, his gravestone reads, you can go and read it if you like, here lies George Whitfield. The great day will reveal what type of man he was. I'm telling you, Christ is returning. And so we don't need to to brood and lick our wounds and dreams of, dream of vengeance. We'd be alert and conscious and aware of his return. He'll settle all accounts and let him handle it. You see, we ought to be alert. And secondly, we ought to be self-controlled. The second way Christians can prepare is to be self-controlled. He says there in verse 6, um, So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Be sober. And I don't think he's just referring to alcohol. We could be drunk with academic prestige and wealth and power and all the rest. And we're to be sober. Why? Because, because that's a nighttime, drunkenness is a nighttime activity. He says in verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, right, we're not of the night, we belong to the day, let us be sober. Literally, let us be self-controlled. And so what Paul is telling us is that our activity needs to flow out of our identity, right? Who we are should determine what we do, not what we do determines who we are. And so Paul says, listen, you're children of the day, you live in the day, you live in the light, therefore what? You need to live like it. Don't live like you're in darkness, but live like you are in the light. Christians, whenever we walk into the darkness... The alarm should be blaring, the conscience should be yelling, danger, danger, get out of here, you don't belong here. This is not where you belong. You are of the light. That's not our natural habitat, Paul says. It's like throwing a lion on a glacier. It doesn't belong there. And he's saying you need to be self-controlled. Who you are should determine what you do. You ever, you ever drive by a firehouse around here? And, and it almost always seems like the doors are open and there's firemen outside and firewomen. Right? What are they doing? What are they doing almost every time? Are they, are they sitting in their pajamas on the lawn chair drinking their beer? Right? No. They seem, to, at least in my perspective, they seem to be washing their trucks every time. Now, I lived in Percival for a year and a half. I don't know how they, how they handle that water bill. Um, but that's, that's what they're doing. Absolutely, they don't have one, right? They're polishing their trucks. They're getting ready, right? They're, 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 everything is in order. They're ready for the bell to ring. Why? Because they're firefighters, right? Their identity determines their action. And Paul says, listen, you're not of the night. You don't do things of the night. You're of the day. Instead, you are self-controlled like those who live in the light. Lastly, he says, we are to be armed. Be armed. As you note in verse 8, what does he say? But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Here it is. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for helmet the hope of salvation. So it's not enough for Christians to be self-controlled. It's not enough for us to say no to sin. We are to then positively cultivate 
Christian virtue. And you see once again, as we see repeated throughout 1 Thessalonians, that great Christian triad of faith, hope, and love. And in fact, I wonder, he's now, of course, again, changing metaphors. I wonder if he's thinking about staying awake. He's thinking about sober. He begins to think of a soldier watching the walls, a sentry up there while the city sleeps behind him. And so he uses the imagery of a soldier's armor. Paul likes to do this. He does it in, I think, five places. And by the way, none of the pieces ever match up. So he's not getting specific here. Just the imagery of being armed and defending yourself by pursuing these Christian virtues. We might suggest that he exhorts us to guard our hearts with faith. The breastplate of faith. Faith in what? Well, the promises of God. So how are you going to face the issues of your day? How are you going to, listen, the world, you understand this, I think. Even as the kingdom advances, the world's not lying down. The world is increasingly hostile to Christians. You get that? Right? It was just a, a, month, a month or so ago that my alma mater, which in the very center of it has a, has a Christian chapel with a belfry, 250 feet high, and there at, at Duke University, they refuse to recognize a Christian Young Life Club because the Young Life is committed to a biblical sexuality amongst their leadership. In other words, what, what we see in this former Christian university, that the sexual freedom of our, of our day and the gender fluidity and all the rest has now trumps the long-held freedom of religion, right? Your religious convictions now are overruled by our convictions on modern sexuality. And you say, Stephen, what in the world's wrong with your alma mater? A lot. And, and by the way, yours is not far behind mine, most likely. And this world is increasingly hostile to Christianity. They mock us, they ridicule us, they oppose us. And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, my friends, we put on the breastplate of faith in God's promises. We remember in the midst of that, that God wins, that Jesus triumphs, that our king is coming, and he will defeat all evil, and he will inaugurate his perfect reign. Right? He will come. He will win. You ever watch a, a sporting event and, and you record it? Some of you guys do this. And, and you find out, maybe on purpose or on accident, that your team wins. And you watch the game anyways. Right? You watch it differently because the suspense is gone. Right? But there's this hope. And that whenever your team suffers a setback, you don't, you don't get all worked up. Because you know it's only temporary. Right, Your team's falling behind, but there's no discouragement because you know you win. The victory is assured. And so the game doesn't have the stress, but just the joy. Well, not to spoil the end of history, but the, we win. We win. Okay? And so listen, read the news knowing we win. Okay? Deal with the challenges in your life knowing we win. Face the unknown and the uncertain future that's troubling you so much, knowing what we win. You put on the breastplate of faith and love, he says, 
right? We don't stop loving others in the midst of this crazy world. We don't stop loving our neighbors. We don't stop loving the nations. We don't stop loving our enemies. We don't stop loving our God. We don't stop loving our brothers and sisters. And while we're at it, we ought to guard our minds with hope, the hope of the salvation helmet, he says. You ought to have hope, Christian, so easy to get, lose hope. And Paul says, you got to put hope in your brain. Put a helmet of hope of salvation to guard yourself that Jesus is coming and he is bringing with him not just victory, but redemption, salvation. And that you will be saved ultimately and forever from sin. You will be saved from judgment. And you will be saved to our king and his kingdom. The question, is that your hope? Do you hope in the return of our king? It was early one morning in 1833 that a frightened boy ran to his sleeping mother shouting, the world is ending. The mother startled from her sleep, rushed to the window, and after looking out and surveying the sky, she said these words, thank God I am ready. What do they see? One of the most remarkable meteor showers that has ever occurred in recorded history. It's called the Great Leonese Meteor Shower of 1833. One modern witness said he never saw as snow, snowflakes thicker in a storm than meteors in the sky on that night. No sound was heard for not a single meteor, as far as we understand, reached the earth But people everywhere fell to the floor in desperation, thinking it to be the end of the world. One secular astronomy website I consulted this week said, one of the most spectacular astronomical sights ever seen in the modern era, with many people believing that the world was coming to an end. And what was that mother's response? Thank God I'm ready. Thank God I'm ready. Are you ready? Are you living like you are? Our Father in heaven, help us in the world of trouble and chaos and opposition to remember our Lord is coming. He'll surprise us when he does, but what a great surprise it will be. Help us to be found, prepared. Help us not to forget these truths. We are exhorted time and again to live in light of them. And so help us, Father, um, to be self-controlled, to be alert. Help us to arm our hearts and minds in a world that assaults us, that we await our coming King. And we pray for those here who have not yet given their life to this King. We pray that they would do so now, that even today they can meet Him as a Savior, rather on that day to meet Him as a Judge. Will you even now work in their life that they might yield their self to Christ in faith? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.